Good afternoon. Welcome to the Cato Institute East. Um, I've introduced uh, Richard Epstein uh, so many times now that uh, I hardly need notes, except that his bio keeps growing, and so it's hard to keep up with it. Um, most important for our purposes here today, he's an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute, has been for many, many years. More broadly, he's uh, now bi-coastal in his major affiliations and from a heartland as well, uh, having in recent years returned to his roots as a Brooklyn boy. Uh, he's the Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of Law at NYU School of Law. Uh, he's also the um, Peter and Kirsten Bedford Senior Fellow at Stanford's Hoover Institution. And of course, he's the James Parker Hall Distinguished Service Professor Emeritus of Law and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago Law School, where he spent most of his career. Uh, Richard has a, an AB from uh, Columbia College. Uh, he has a BA uh, from Oxford University, and his law degree is from Yale University. Um, He's been a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences since 1985 and a senior fellow at the Center for Clinical Medical Ethics at the University of Chicago Medical School, also since 1983. He served as editor of the uh, Journal of Legal Studies for a decade uh, from 1981 to 1991, and then another decade after that as the editor of the Journal of Law and Economics at the University of Chicago. He is the author of more books and articles than we have time to list. I'll just mention a few of the books. Um, <clears throat> Takings, Private Property, and the Power of Eminent Domain is the one for which he is most noted, of course. And some of you uh, may remember that was the book that uh, then-Senator Joe Biden held up at the hearings for uh, then-Judge Clarence Thomas. Uh, and said, uh, in effect, that uh, if you believe what's in this book, you're not going to get my vote. Um, <clears throat> he is. <laughs> it was worse. I don't remember his exact words. Uh, but in any event, um, among his other books are, and I'll just cite a few that are relevant, Principles for a Free Society, uh, Reconciling Individual Liberty with the Common Good, 1998, Skepticism and Freedom, A Modern Case for Classical Liberalism, uh, Simple Rules for a Complex World, uh, which uh, Cato co-published with the Harvard University Press, and uh, I edited uh, during a long period of uh, doing nothing else, um, when, because that is was required for editing uh, uh, Richard's books. Um, <clears throat> Forbidden Grounds, uh, the case against employment discrimination law. Uh, Bargaining with the State from Princeton in 1993. How Progressives Rewrote the Constitution, which we published at Cato in 2006. Uh, and then, of course, most importantly from the early days, uh, cases and materials on torts, which originally was Gregory, Calvin, and Epstein on torts, but that book now is Epstein on torts, now in its eighth edition. Is it the eighth, or are we now up to the ninth? Tenth? Uh, torts change that often that you have to do, have to re-edit uh, your book uh, that often. Um, well, we're here today, and this is Bill of Rights uh, Day, uh, fittingly, uh, to mark the publication of yet another book uh, in the Epsteinian corpus, Design for Liberty, Private Property, Public Administration, and, and the Rule of Law. 
Uh, also, Richard asked me to mention this new book uh, that has come out from Encounter. It's a little pamphlet, Why Progressive Institutions Are Unsustainable, something we don't need convincing for here at the Cato Institute, but nonetheless, over on the Hill, they do need convincing about that. In any event, this book today is available at a reduced price outside, and Richard will be able to sign it for you uh, over lunch. Uh, the subtitle is Private Property, Public Administration, and the Rule of Law, and that central title of uh, public administration is one that is especially important in this book. In fact, what I have found most um, uh, illuminating in this book is uh, the uh, effort to make clear that uh, law cannot answer every question, and in particular, the court cannot answer every question. There must be room for discretion, and yet discretion and law must be put together in a principled way, which is exactly what this book does. So would you please welcome Richard Epstein. Keep my distance a little bit. Uh, it's a very great pleasure to be here. I see we have all the Klieg lights burning, uh, and uh, if I don't melt uh, like a pat of butter, I hope to be able to explain to you something about how this book is organized and what its particular genesis turns out to be. Um, uh, one of the things that sort of happens to you as you start to get older um, is that you think of law or virtually any social system not only as a matter of deductive rules and necessary truths, but as a series of empirical regularities which need justification and argumentation, some of which comes from experience and sometimes comes from experience which is not easily quantifiable, so that it leaves you with the necessity in some way, shape, or form of being able to exercise judgment about hard cases in difficult types of circumstances. And what happens is you don't want to overlearn that particular lesson and assume that because you're going to have to have a system which embodies a certain degree of discretion, that necessarily all decisions turn out to be highly discretionary. So you're trying to basically put together a system which manages to combine the both of these particular ideals. And so when I wrote this book on Design to Liberty, the original title of it was Private Property and the, and the Rule of Law, uh, which I was going to talk about the arrangements between those two elements. And then the more I started to write this book, the more it became very clear to me that you had to insert this nasty little thing in the middle, that is the stuff about public administration, because of the simple but extremely important insight uh, that institutions do not run by rules of loan, but they require all sorts of commitments to people and permanent types of arrangements, which are not so easily captured in either the first or the third of these two particular elements. Now, the philosophical problem that's behind this is, of course, one which I think is of deep importance uh, to people who, like myself, write in the classical liberal tradition. If you go back to writers, for example, like Hayek and so forth, what you discover is a very strong and stirring commitment to the rule of law and a kind of an argument that if, in fact, you do believe in the rule of law, you will necessarily be committed to institutions of private property. And so the position that is generally made is that there's kind of a necessary connection uh, between our favorite private institutions and this rather neutral value, and the issue is whether or not this proposition turns out to be true or false. And it turns out, I think, that the proposition is true, but it is not true as a necessary truth. It is true not by deductions, but it's true only after you understand how it is that a system of private property is put together and what it's designed to achieve and how it achieves it. 
So if you begin with the definition of what the rule of law is, what you discover that it embraces a series of elements which does not seem to have any serious opposition. That is, you could go across the political spectrum and everybody's in favor of the rule of law, which means that either the concept is empty on the one hand or not fully understood on the other, because given all the other cleavages that we have in this particular town, if people are agreeing on the solemnity of one particular issue, it's very clear that they do not see the thing in exactly the same way as the other side. Well, if you start with this particular element, what you discover in dealing with the rule of law is that all of its virtues turn out to be abstract in form. So that you have a virtue which says that if you wish to impose a law, you must be able to give notice to people so that they can comply with what it says. That if you wish to have something as a system of laws, what you must do is to make sure that the rules in question are consistent with one another. If you wish for people to be able to guide their contact in one particular way or another, you have to worry about retroactive laws which attach penalties to particular behaviors after they've been committed. If you want to have a system of rule of law that's going to be administered, it turns out that it has to have a minimum level of simplicity or otherwise its complexity will overwhelm the operation of the system. And hence, you have to have, for example, judges who are neutral and non-biased in the way in which the system operates. And you can kind of go on in that particular vein. As my NYU colleague, uh, Jeremy Waldron, who's a prominent philosopher, of law says, there is in fact no necessary connection between a set of formal virtues on the one hand and a set of substantive commitments associated with the rule of property on the other. And so therefore, instead of being able just to assert that formality points you in one direction, you have to understand how it is that the two systems are developed so that you could see the linkage being established in a more concrete and specific way. And that in effect is what this book tries to do in its first mission is to put the two ends together and then explain where it is that public administration necessarily comes in the middle. And the way in which you start to do this, I think, is to understand how a system of private property, when ideally conceptualized, leaves essentially no gaps in the system with respect to the way in which arrangements are going to be ordered, either between private individuals on the one hand or with the government on the other. And this is an idealized model, which will obviously be beaten down to some extent when you try to put it into place in the real world. But you have to understand what its formal characteristics are in order to see how the interactions work. So essentially, the system of private law that we have, and to some extent public law as well, starts with the usual assumption of individual autonomy, that each person owns his or her own body and is entitled to do with it what he chooses, so long as he does not interfere with the like liberties of other individuals. And this principle of self-ownership or of individual autonomy turns out to be the only acceptable starting place for understanding how human resources are allocated, because you cannot think of another system that will work. So to put it in a more explicit kind of context, you can easily imagine a system in which you don't have autonomy, in which there's simply one person who's a dictator with respect to everybody else, and then you have the annoying questions to decide who that person is and why it is that that person should have preference with respect to the rest of us. 
Or you could try to play something like a Rawlsian gambit and say that individual talents are not owned by the people who have them, that there's some kind of community asset, at which point you then have to figure out how this community is going to be organized and how any individual who has the talents can operate them without getting the consent of everybody else who to some extent is a part owner of what he has and then conversely he, of course, is a part owner of what they have. And so the simplification that you get it becomes absolutely critical in the way in which we then ask the next major question, which is how does it come that anybody is going to own external assets in the world which, under a pure theory, are not owned at the outset by necessity? That is, there's nothing about ownership which is a natural institution in the sense that it's created by the forces of physics. It's a social institution created by human beings in order to achieve various kinds of social ends. And what you need to do, again, is to face the same kind of problem how it is that you manage to get these things into hands that they can be clearly understood and, in fact, productively used. And every legal system, no matter where you go, no matter what its different philosophical commitments, always starts with respect to those things that can be reduced to private ownership with the rule of occupation of first possession. You take the thing, and it turns out to be yours, and everybody else has to respect it. And then when you put the rest of the system together, there are two other features that are associated with it that also bear notice. One of them is if you have these assets in labor or in property, you then have to protect them against people who wish to circumvent the system. And this requires the development of a rule of tort, which deals with respect to aggression. And in addition, if the only thing you could do with resources when you have them is to possess them, they are of no value to anybody. So what you do is you add to this particular bundle of right abilities to use on the one hand and the ability to dispose on the other. And the disposition that you're starting to talk about is going to require the development of a very complicated system of contract rules, which essentially allow people to decide whom they want to trade with and the form that the particular trade will take. It will decide whether or not you wish to sell assets, to lease them, or to pool them in some kind of ongoing arrangement. And what happens is if you can get this system to work, and keep the transactions cost low. Its great virtue as a matter on the private side quite simply is this. What happens is you know both at the beginning and at every particular stage in the process exactly who is owning what at any given time, which is a real virtue, the clarity of title. And you also can say at the same time that if in fact you validate these particular moves, uh, by showing that the acquisition was taking of something that was not owned or that the contracts were of, with respect to assets that were already owned, that each of these arrangements will increase the size of the social pie. At the same time, they do nothing to increase the number of rights that are available. So that what happens is you're constrained in the way in which you have resources. The rights are essentially finite, but if you reassign them back and forth, they go to people who value them more from people who value them less, or they allow people to combine their labor and take attractive synergies so that you get this kind of what I like to call northeast hoe type of mentality. That is, if you think of one person on an x-axis and another person on the y-axis, you want to move them both further into positive gain, and the great institution of contract and property are the things that allow you to do that. So the question then is, how does this relate in the private side to the rule of law? Well, what you have to do essentially is to understand the way in which the bundle of rights ties up with this larger question of neutral rules. And there are a number of characteristics about this bundle which I think are worthy of note in this particular case. 
And the first of this situation here is that the notice requirements that you have with respect to a property system turn out to be amazingly easy to enforce. That is, the basic norm is not that you're not allowed to do anything that harms another individual. That's much too broad. That's the mistake that John Stuart Mill made when he didn't define the specific content of the harm principle. Rather, at this point, one puts on his libertarian thinking cap, and what you're referring to is a situation where when you use your own property, you're not permitted to engage in the use of force or the threat of force against anybody else, which you have to keep your hands to yourself. And that kind of principle is sufficiently easy to state and to enforce that you do not need to have elaborate public manuals out there telling you what is or is not permitted. So you can avoid one of the major problems that you see, for example, with the modern criminal law, particularly at the federal level, where there are so many things that are illegal that unless you can consult lawyers and so forth, you cannot begin to act in any way, shape, or form, and you offend in many conscious ways the requirement of simple notification, which is one of the core and root values associated with the rule of law. A second feature about this system of private property is that it turns out um, that, basically speaking, it's very easily scalable. And what I mean by that is that if you look at the particular system and you have yourself a society of n individuals where n is relatively small, everybody can understand these kinds of relationships um, and keep themselves apart. The only exceptions to this particular rule are, interestingly enough, not social relationships, but family relationships where you're related by blood or marriage. And under these circumstances, of course, the internal rules of division are much more complicated than they are among strangers, precisely because everybody has very concrete information about everybody else in the group, and you could make for more elaborate arrangements. This also, by the way, happens to be true in business because when you're dealing with small corporations, their capital structures are often very complicated. The moment you start dealing with large capital structures and big companies, you have a single class, of stock, single class of stock which is easily tradable and nothing else, precisely because if you make things more complicated, the game itself cannot operate in a coherent fashion. People cannot value the assets that they have or the interest in them, and so therefore without valuation you cannot get trades. So what you do is you drive your yourself back when you're dealing with anonymous markets to fungible and standardized products in order to keep the system operating. Well, when you're dealing with strangers, the same thing starts to happen. And what the scalability of a property rights rule system means is that as you go from a system of a thousand people to a million people, the nature of the rights is between strangers do not change amongst themselves so that you still have the same keep-off norms and the ability to project information about those norms remains as high as it does in any smaller type of system, which again reduces all of the burdens that are going to be placed on public discretion in the way in which you start to operate or to move a legal system of this sort. The third great advantage of the system of private property is that it only requires forbearance among strangers. And to the extent that it requires forbearance among strangers, um, what happens is the rules don't change as the wealth that you have in a society happens to change. So that one of the things that you worry about, for example, when you're dealing with a welfare state and you're going to decide collectively how much benefits you give either for health care or for housing and so forth, is the budgetary requirements that are placed upon public institutions are just enormous because what you have to first do is assess what the tax revenues are going to be. And then you have to turn out and decide which class of recipients is going to be entitled to receive what class of benefits 
Both of these are extremely difficult kinds of tasks, and there is, as we know all too well, if you look at Air Europe and the United States today, no guarantee whatsoever when you put this through political deliberations that the revenue sources will start to generate the wealth which is needed to support the entitlements that are going to be placed upon it. When you start talking about a system of private property, you never have that particular difficulty because the bundle of rights remains constant in poor societies and in rich societies, so you don't have to recalibrate the way in which the right structure is going to be organized each time you have a change in the level of wealth in the society because either good or bad circumstances happen to um, occur. This means that you get a stability with respect to legal institutions that turns out to be highly robust. Now, the fourth feature which is associated with these features is there is, in fact, in most cases, a serious advantage to numerosity. That is, if you're trying to think about how trade works in a small society, it's quite likely there'll be only one or two people who have the goods and services that you want on any given occasion. And when you're having these very thin markets, the ability to get accurate pricing is going to be necessarily compromised. But oddly enough, as the number of individuals in a society increase, then in effect the markets become thicker. And as the market becomes thicker, trades become easier to make precisely because competition tends to force you down to a unique price. So if you put all of these features together with respect to a private system and compare it to the kinds of features that you get with the administrative state, there's a very strong coherence between the attributes of the rule of law on the one hand and the question of a system of private property on the other, whereas the broad system of entitlements with which from time to time I have contrasted it never has this kind of coherence and will always be subject systematically and necessarily to the kinds of defects that I talked about. So that I don't want people to think about this as a critique of this, that, or the other person in Washington. That's not what this is about. It's a question that when you organize rights in accordance with one particular structure, this is going to be the necessary consequence of how things are put together. Now, uh, the second portion of this system has to do with the numerosity requirement that I just referred to. And the issue here is what happens in a situation where you are not trying to look to get a competitive equilibrium where individual traders in goods or in services can pick from a large number of individuals on the other side of the market, but rather what you're trying to do is to get a single network type solution whereby everybody has to sign on to a particular project for anybody to be able to succeed. And the fundamental question of political order, of course, raises that issue because the well-known Hobbesian dilemma is if we have a society of N people very large and N minus one of them all agree to surrender the use of force voluntarily against others in exchange for their surrender to the use of force against them, that one person who's outside of the system can disrupt the entire political equilibrium. And of course, as one person does it, other people will start to do it. So that as N gets larger, the problem of social order in many ways becomes more acute because the probability of getting a defective from what must be a single focal point solution increases greatly. And essentially, there are only one way to stop this particular problem. And that's to basically abandon, at least within limits, the system of individual property rights that I've talked about to figure out ways in which you can, in fact, generate the necessary public goods uh, which become the platform on which the system of private rights operates. And you can't ignore that by saying, well, we'll just do that by contract. 
contract will always fail in these situations. Indeed, once the number of people trying to reach a collective solution in which all must participate for any to succeed exceeds five, it's almost impossible to get a voluntary agreement, even when you have an ongoing social order to back up the transaction. So we have to add two other kinds of institutions to this particular game. One of them is a system of taxation, and the other is a system of eminent domain. And taxation is the system which allows you to get the revenues needed to put the infrastructure in place. And eminent domain is allowing you to get the specific assets you need when, in fact, there's certain key points for roads and so forth that you must have in order for anything to succeed. Well, then the question is, how do you constrain discretion in these areas? And I can't go into it in detail, but I just want to make a couple of points about it. First, with respect to tax, the last thing you worry about is the top 1%. What you're trying to worry about is how it is that you create orderly political use of power. And the only solution that achieves that result turns out to be the flat tax, because it's the one tax system which is invariant in structure, regardless of the needs that you need on the public side or the level of wealth that you have within the society. And so running a system of this particular form does an enormous amount to control the dangers of political discretion, which in fact can blow any society apart because there is no unique level of progressive or regressive taxes you could have in society. There's an infinite variety, and when you start to insist upon that as being your primary good, it turns out that you have very short time horizons associated with property rights, because the deals are going to be reconfigured every two years as the political coalitions in Washington or in other kinds of nations start to coalesce. So you want to have that structure. When it comes to eminent domain, the key feature to understand is you have to defend the entire system of property rights, because otherwise any little bit of it will be corroded by government intrigue. So the modern distinction between the physical and the regulatory taking is, of course, an absolute sort of intellectual myth. The private property system works because you can divide holes into parts and protect them equally. The eminent domain law has to follow the private law, or otherwise you will never be able to see effective private transactions if it means that people become expropriate, subject to state expropriation. And the just compensation requirement is essentially saying the government has to meet a price condition because otherwise it will overconsume. And the point of all of this is if you cannot pay off all the private individuals for their private losses to put together a public system, then it's not worth doing. So that it gives you information which can be easily observed about whether these systems should or should not start to go forward. So essentially, what you're trying to do with the creation of these systems is to create a set of rules that look as though they have as little discretion in them as possible. So why then do you have to put public discretion in the title of the paper? What do I have, five more minutes, Roger? Yeah, um, what you want to do on this particular side is to understand why you need it. And let me just give you a couple of illustrations. There are, of course, great deals of uncertainty that are associated with the operation of any legal system. We may all agree, for example, that running a system that murder becomes an actionable event, theft and rape and all sorts of other crimes become actionable. But there is the uncertainty as to who committed it and how that particular person acted. And the only way in which you can figure out how to decide individual cases is to trust somebody, call them prosecutors, in order to decide whether or not the evidence associated with a particular case is strong enough to allow that particular case to be brought. 
And this is the kind of thing which you can try to cabin in by procedural rules dealing with due process and so forth, and indeed notice and hearing, which are the main principles of natural law as applied on the procedural side, in fact help to achieve that. But that doesn't solve the whole problem because these rules are only defensive once you get into court. It doesn't tell you who, which individuals ought to be charged and what levels of charge ought to be made against them. And anybody who's ever worked in this particular town understands that in many kinds of industries, the mere fact that you are subject to government prosecution is the most fatal payment that, you know, punishment that you could face precisely because you're dealing in a heavily regulatory environment where the mere fact of a lawsuit brought against you by a public official requires you to cease doing business, even if it turns out that you're innocent in the end, as was the case, for example, with respect to Arthur Anderson. And the reason, therefore, you talk about public administration is that you cannot require or rely on ex post intervention by courts to solve this problem. You have to develop something of a kind of a, an esprit de corps, a civic sense of responsibility, a series of internal management norms in order to handle these kinds of things. If you don't do this, the rest of the system will simply collapse because of the systematic violation of the rights that are done by public and private officials. So one of the things I think that people like myself who are strongly libertarian have to be enormously careful about is constantly bad-mouthing government officials as being inherently incapable and stupid and ignorant in everything that they do, thereby inducing the very behaviors that you would try to avoid and making it harder to enforce the rules in question. But on the other hand, if in fact you have this modest system of property rights, um, which defines the kind of offenses, the level of discretion that need be entrusted to these people will be smaller precisely because you have clear boundary lines as to what is or is not legal conduct, which means that the fact-finding task on which these things have to rest can be correspondingly controlled. And so, too, when you look at the public stuff, you cannot avoid the issue of discretion in the way in which that operates. I'm all in favor of a flat tax, but there are two very residual problems that it doesn't solve. One, you have to figure out what the rate is going to be, and that means you have to put together budgets, and the budgets have to have a series of expenditures. Uh, one of the functions of the public use requirements in the takings clause is to sort of limit the kinds of things that government can do so as to limit the degree of discretion that you have. And the creation of non-excludable public goods is a very good way to start. And so when the Supreme Court takes the position that anything which has a discernible public purpose turns out to be for public use, what you're doing is you're loosening the constraints on the expenditure side, which will now put enormous pressure on the revenue-raising side as well. And so you don't want to have that degree of discretion. It's just hard enough to run this system for admitted public goods. And then you have all the tasks when government does this as to whether you contract out to third parties, and if so, how you oversee their behavior, and so forth. And so, too, with respect to eminent domain, I wrote many books on this subject, and it's always negative after the fact. What you then have to do is to figure out what kind of public institutions you wanted to put into place so as to build the public park here as opposed to build it there. And you start to see cases where these things go very much awry precisely because the public use requirement is so weak in many cases that government officials overclaim the kind of land that they take over, displace people from their homes for no particular reason, and then turn it into a refuse dump at the next hurricane, which is exactly what happened in the Kilo case. Ms. Kilo's home now is a waste of.
uh, in the grand city of New London, Connecticut, which is also pretty much bankrupt because of its own profligacy on other sorts. So the three pieces fit together necessarily in the way in which you start to organize government. And the broad claim that I'm making is that a traditional administrative state, which is concentrating on relatively modest licensing requirements to see that people can drive cabs and so forth, will do far better than a modern administrative state where the discretion on how the money is raised, where the money is spent, the kinds of projects that you will raise is essentially unbounded. So if you're trying to put together the way in which this particular system has fallen, and this gets me not only to this book, but to the little broadside I wrote on progressive institutions, the great challenge, and I will end on this point, of American society is as follows. What we do is we manage to throttle private institutions of property and contract by a set of regulations that make it extremely difficult to develop. It turns out that we're very bad in assessing the way in which you deal with uncertainty in dealing with certain kinds of environmental projects where the tendency is to regulate too soon and too much instead of letting more information come out before you use the fatal form of injunctive relief. And then on the public side, since you're not creating public goods only through taxation but huge transfer systems, we have additional losses that take place. So essentially the way in which the system works when the rule of law, private property and public information and administration are not in sync is as follows. We destroy production at the bottom. And then, in effect, we have a transfer system on the top, which cannot be sustained by the resources that we have available. So what we then do is we decide, in effect, to increase the level of taxation or regulation because we don't like what we see in order to increase the level of entitlement spending, and the cycle continues. And unless and until you break it at both the macro government level and the private level, you will always fail in trying to constrain the government. So let me again be very clear. This is not a libertarian treatise which says how in utopia we can live without any form of government anywhere. It's a book which says that you have to discharge these kinds of functions, and then you try to develop at the global level strategies that will minimize the risk on both the production and on the distribution side. So instead of trying to be deductive in this particular case exclusively, there's an effort to try to institute an awareness of the sort of prudential imperatives that drive you back to classical liberal ideals. And I hope that the book has been able to achieve that. And when Adam starts to talk now, we'll find out whether I've succeeded or failed. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you very much, Richard. We're very fortunate to have commenting on this book today uh, Adam Liptak, who is the Supreme Court correspondent for the New York Times. He joined the Times uh, news staff in 2002 and began covering the Supreme Court in the fall of 2008. He's written a column sidebar on developments in the law since 2007. His series on ways in which the U.S. legal system differs from those of other developed nations, American exception, was a finalist for the 2009 Pulitzer Prize in explanatory reporting. Adam first joined the Times as a copy boy in 1984 after graduating from the college at Yale University, where he was an editor of the Yale Daily News Magazine. He returned to Yale for a law degree, graduating in 1988. During law school, he worked as a summer clerk in the Times Company's legal department. He then spent four years at Cahill, Gordon, and Rindell in New York as a litigation associate specializing in First Amendment matters. 
1992, he returned to the Times legal department, spending a decade advising the Times and the company's other newspapers, television stations, and new media properties on defamation, privacy, news gathering, and related issues, perhaps even the takings issue as it involved Times Square and the New York Times. Oh, you did? Okay, good. I'm glad to hear that. Um, and he frequently litigated uh, media and commercial cases. He's taught media law at the Columbia University School of Journalism, UCLA Law School, and Yale Law School. Uh, he's written uh, occasional book reviews for the Times and the New York Observer and contributed to other sections of the Times. His work has also appeared in The New Yorker, Vanity Fair, Rolling Stone, Business Week, and The American Lawyer. And he's written several law review articles as well, especially on First Amendment topics. Please welcome Adam Liptak. Thank you very much, Roger. Well, I've done my uh, fair share of foolish things in my life, um, and some of them in print. Uh, and I now see that agreeing to follow Richard Epstein is one of them. Um, the Epstein experience, as you've now seen it in person, is uh, like drinking from a fire hose of ideas. He goes very fast. The Liptak experience I'm about to demonstrate is like drinking from a sippy cup of ideas. <laughs> uh, humiliation aside, uh, it's a pleasure to be here to celebrate uh, Design for Liberty, which is a deceptively slender book that distills a lifetime of scholarship into fewer than 200 pages. Uh, but what pages? Richard's voice jumps off the page. The voice you heard today is very much the voice of the book. Uh, direct, he makes every word count. The virtue of the book is that you can read it twice. You can go back and maybe, if, if, if you like I, sometimes have a hard time keeping up with the oral Richard Epstein, you have a chance to concentrate a little better in book form. Uh, he's an aphoristic writer, uh, sort of like Emerson in a way, where very compact sentences carry quite a lot of weight. Uh, the aspect of the book that appealed to me most was its uh, mixture of formal theory and mature judgment. As Roger said, its acknowledgment that some things must be matters of discretion even if the general framework is made up most of the time, in Richard's word, words, of hard-edged rules. There's a lot of theory in the book, all of it sound, and much of it simultaneously simple and sophisticated, along the lines of the Coase theorem or Learned Ham's negligence cal calculus. Consider, for instance, this crisp little sentence. And this is the sort of sentence that, at least the likes of me, you, you read once or twice before it really sinks in. A legal system should not remedy harms that are inversely correlated with overall social welfare. You could separate valuable from frivolous litigation with very little else beyond that principle. Very nicely stated. The book also contains uh, what I think is easily the best short defense of the Lochner decision that I've ever read, almost in passing, sort of offhandedly, Richard will explain things to you. If there were moments of skepticism in my reading, they were probably a combination of my own lack of life experience and uh, Richard's self-confidence. He will occasionally write a sentence like this one. It is well known, and that's the extent of the attribution, <laughs> it is well known that sentiments tend to shift against unions during the organization of a union drive. Pro may well be true. I don't, I don't know it to be true, and I would not have objected to a footnote. Uh, <laughs> You'll have your chance. There were moments in my reading, I have to say, when I thought I had wandered briefly into somebody else's book. One of them, I'm, I'm alarmed to say, was Rick Perry's campaign biography. 
The feeling passed, but not until after Richard observed that Social Security can only be called a government-sponsored Ponzi scheme. Uh, in a way, I mean, you'll, you'll be happy to hear, but in a way I regret it. You'll be happy to hear that the book is very timely. It talks about Dodd-Frank, and it talks about the health care law. Um, and it makes provocative points, but I wonder whether it, it doesn't detract in a small way from what I think is the really lasting value of this book, because I, I do think that it's a distillation of, of a lifetime of experience that will be read decades from now. And I wonder if decades from now, uh, people will think uh, that the discussion of those statutes, uh, however significant they are, and they are, and however flawed they are, and they are, uh, doesn't tend to date the book a little way, in a way, because I do think it'll, it'll, it'll be read for some time. And when, when the, the reader 20 or 30 years from now hits that passage, they may need a little explanation. Uh, Richard did make an important observation about the health care law that I think is easily and I dare say sometimes willfully overlooked. An odd point, he says, his words, about the way the legal argument against the health care law has been framed, quote, is that it takes a concern that is related to individual autonomy and uses it to deal with matters of federal power rather than with ordinary questions of individual liberty. That is to say, if the, if the mandate has a flaw, it's, it's a liberty interest question. And to recast that as a federalism question takes away some of the force of the argument. So here I thought for a moment I'd wandered into an, art, an article I was reading in something called Democracy Journal, which is pretty lefty, I think. In it, Jedediah Purdy, a law professor at Duke, made a similar point this way. There really is no such thing as a constitutionally protected liberty that a state can violate, but the federal government cannot, or vice versa. Richard's book also has some welcome idiosyncrasies and some distinctive digressions. At one point, I had thought I had stumbled into yet another book, maybe a wise self-help book, or a particularly good fortune cookie. <laughs> this is my favorite sentence in the book. Make happiness the purpose of every action, and it is easy to be miserable. So I'm tempted to repeat that in a fake Chinese accent. <laughs> Make happiness the purpose of every action, and it, and it is easy to be miserable. Now, Richard was making the point, and it's a profound point, that, uh, I'm quoting now, like personal happiness, social welfare is best achieved by indirection. And he went on, and from this I, I picked up some rules for living. One should do particular tasks that one enjoys, and happiness flows from the harmonious succession of philosophically unreflective acts. Uh, I suspect Richard enjoyed the tasks involved in preparing his splendid book. I certainly attained some incidental happiness from the task of reading it. Please congratulate me and uh, please join me. Well, no, first of all, congratulate. No, please join me in congratulating the author. <laughs>